Good morning, church. My name is Caleb. I serve here as one of the pastors. And uh, today, we are continuing on in our sermon series called Explore God. Uh, But before we do that, I had one quick announcement. Uh, If you have been a part of Desert Springs for a while, and you'd like to know more about what it means to be part of the membership here, part of the committed core, uh, basically, we understand membership to be a way of saying I'm all in with the mission, values, and vision of the church. It's a way to say to the church family, I'm committed, I'm in. And if you'd like to know more about membership at Desert Springs, I'd invite you to join me for our next membership class coming up next week. You can check out that website for more information. Also, there's a ministry guide in the back of the seat in front of you uh, with that same information on it. I'd encourage you to join me for that. Uh, membership, uh, participating in the class doesn't make you a member, and we don't give you the hard sell. So it's not a... A pressure thing. We just want to let you know about our mission, values, and vision and invite you to uh, commit to living that out through membership. The second announcement I want to make is I'm wearing a tie. I wanted to say, I wanted to be very clear, no, 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 don't clap, because I didn't wear it for you, and I didn't wear it for Jesus, okay? Jesus doesn't care if you wear a tie or not. I wore this because it's Mother's Day, and so both of my moms are part of the church family as well as my wife, so this is for them. Happy Mother's Day. Now, that's probably all the clapping you're going to do because today's uh, topic is this question. Is God a moral monster? Now, someone might say, Caleb, didn't you know that the day that you scheduled that sermon was Mother's Day? (laughs) No, I did not. But uh, uh, American holidays do not dictate uh, how we believe the Lord is leading us to engage in the text, and so here we go. I'm going to try. I, I, I'm going to try to make this work and weave it together. And there's a thousand inappropriate Mother's Day jokes that I'm going to try not to make because some of the things that we're talking about today are polygamy, stoning disobedient children, uh, and slavery. And so. I'll let you kind of write your own jokes and humorous ways to weave that together with Mother's Day. Uh, One of the things that we know to be true, uh, God is a, a person. God's an actual person, not just some sort of idea. And God is, uh, contrary to our um, general disposition, God is dangerous. God is shocking. God is all-powerful and all-knowing. And God, much like my mother growing up, oftentimes does things that contradict my preferences. See, I did it. I got one under my belt. I wove it together. That's about it. How many of you have ever read something in the Bible or heard something that that the Bible says and thought, man, that does not seem right? Anybody? Anybody ever had that? Listen, if you're one of those folks who at the new year, you're like, I'm going to read the Bible cover to cover. And then you read Genesis and you're like, there are a lot of people dying. This is getting interesting. This is more interesting than I thought it was going to be. Then you get into like Exodus and there's a lot, of, a lot more violence. And then you get into like Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And there's a lot of laws. And there's a lot of things that make our modern sensibilities go, Lick. things like, Slavery or primogeniture, namely that the firstborn uh, son has the majority of the rights, or polygamy, or uh, stoning disobedient or rebellious children. And we have to remind ourselves that God is however God is, regardless of our ability to stomach it, to borrow a Flannery O'Connor phrase. God is whoever God is, God is however God is, regardless of my ability to stomach it. 
Because God is an actual person. God actually exists. And God's character and God's nature oftentimes contradict uh, my preferences. In fact, if you were to look at Philippians 4, 8 through 9, we can put it up on the screen. You could turn there if you're in your Bibles if you'd like. Philippians 4, 8 through 9, it says this. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any moral excellence, and if there is anything praiseworthy, Dwell on these things. Do what you have learned and received and heard from me and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. If there is anything lovely, anything pure, anything commendable, anything of moral excellence, dwell on these things and strive to do these things. And of course, we go to the scriptures and we say, okay, what is good? What is lovely? What is commendable? What is morally excellent? And then we come into some very difficult texts. And so what we're gonna do today is I'm gonna encourage you uh, in this way. Uh, we're going to, I'm gonna give four um, considerations as you are engaging with God, perhaps through the scriptures or engaging in dialogue about God. I'm gonna give you four considerations as you come into these difficult things, uh, things to consider, and, then, uh, and that's gonna be kind of a lecture part I know this is a sermon, but that's kind of a lecture part where I'm just going to give you some considerations, and then I'm hoping and praying that we pivot into a sermon, which is usually my favorite part. You'll know I'll get more animated. That's generally how you know. Number one, four considerations. Number one, we might misunderstand what's actually being said. Number two, we might be chronological snobs. Number three, we might project our definition onto an ancient culture. Number four, we may not see the whole story. Four considerations as you engage with God, as you hear about God, as you learn more about God, when you come into these things that are difficult to understand or frustrating or are contrary to your preferences or perhaps even your own moral code, number one, we might misunderstand what's actually being said. Number two, we might be chronological snobs. Number three, we might be projecting our definition onto an ancient culture. And number four, we may not be seeing the whole story. Here we go. In Genesis 16, verse 3, it says this. This is speaking about Abraham, who's one of the uh, key figures in the book of Genesis. In fact, throughout the scriptures, Abraham comes up a lot. He is what some would call a hero of the faith. It says this, Genesis 16, 3. You guys ready? I'm going to try that one more time. You guys ready? Genesis 16, 3. So Abram's wife, Sarai, took Hagar, her Egyptian slave, ooh, and gave her to her husband, Abram, as a wife for him. Does anyone have a moral problem with what we just read about Abraham? Yes. Happy Mother's Day. Sarah was not able to conceive children, and so he, Abraham took her slave. Does anyone have a problem with that? Yeah, I do, right? Took her slave and gave her to her husband, Abraham, as a wife for him. They didn't get divorced. Rather, there's now a second wife in the picture. And I'm sure he's thinking, this is mighty bigamy <laughs> to bring her into my family. All right, I'm, I'm going to try to keep it on the, I'm going to try, I had to, I'm, I, okay. You read Genesis, right? You start out in January, you make a New Year's resolution, I'm gonna read the Bible cover to cover, and here we are 16 weeks in, and already we've got slavery and polygamy. 
And one of the things that we need to consider is perhaps when I read that, when I have a problem with that, when I recoil against that idea of polygamy, I'm asking myself the question, does God actually want polygamy? Does God actually legitimize polygamy? You, you read through, especially the Older Testament, there's polygamy throughout. In fact, the majority of the Old Testament heroes of the faith have multiple spouses at the same time, polygamy. And so we say, okay, is, is God pro-polygamy? It seems to come up a lot, and there's a couple of considerations I would ask that you would make. Number one, you might, we might not be understanding what's being said here. There's a difference, you know, between description and prescription. You guys know that, right? To describe something is not the same as to prescribe something. To say this is how it is is not to say the same as this is how it ought to be. You guys with me on that? And so, yes, the Bible does describe polygamy an awful lot. But one of the things that Robert Alter, who wrote a book called The Art of Biblical Narrative, one of the things he points out is uh, you have to actually read and read the context and read the consequences and read how this turns out if you want to know about uh, two things he points out, primogeniture, which is the rights to the firstborn, and then polygamy. One of the things that Alter says is this. If you read all of the accounts of polygamy and your conclusion is that this is a good idea, you do not know how to read. Now, he's an arrogant professor and author. Uh, I'm just telling you what he says. Because if you read all of the accounts of polygamy, one of the things that you notice is this. It never works out. There is no happy polygamist family in the scriptures. In fact, if you read through the scriptures, one of the things that you find is the institution of polygamy is directly undermined. In fact, I'll even uh, give you a little hint. If you go to Genesis 1, you see that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and then he creates people. He creates them male and female, Adam and Eve. Male and female, husband and is the next statement singular or plural. Husband and wife, he creates them. And you have the very definition of marriage there in Genesis, and yet you have descriptions throughout the scriptures of people straying from that description. Now, here's another thing too. I want to lean into this for a second. <clears throat> so here's the question. Does God use sinful polygamists to bring forth his good will? Yes, he does. And that's good news for you and for me because that means God could use sinful people like you and me also. While we may not be guilty of the sin, the distasteful sin of polygamy, perhaps, perhaps there may be none of us in the room who would say, I'm perfect enough for God to use me. You with me on that? So does God choose to use broken people and broken systems in a broken world to bring about his good ends? Yes, he does. And thank God, because there ain't no other type of people you with me on that? Yes. Description versus prescription. We might be misunderstanding what's being said. In fact, Jesus does not directly speak about polygamy, likely because the institution was no longer being propagated and he felt like he didn't need to speak to it. In fact, Jesus speaks uh, about divorce, something that was uh, being raised more in his day than polygamy. 
And so number one, we might misunderstand what's actually being said. Number two, we may be chronological snobs. Now I'm borrowing that from C.S. Lewis, who I think borrowed it from another uh, British author. Chronological snobs. We generally, I myself, generally tend to think that because I live now in the future compared to everyone who came before me, that all of my sensitivities are somehow better than all who came before me. In fact, we say things like, oh, that's such an old way of thinking. You guys ever heard that before? That's such an old way of thinking. But isn't that interesting we use that derogatorily? Do we do that with wine? Oh, this is such an old wine. What an old vintage. Blah, I need new wine, right? No, see, it, that old new thing really just depends on what it is that you're talking about before you understand it to be good or bad. And so simply because the wisdom is ancient does not mean that it's inherently bad. We may be chronological snobs. Now, I'm going to lean into something here, and uh, none of us are going to like it, but here we go. Deuteronomy 21, 18 through 21. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son, I don't know if you can relate. If anyone has a stubborn or rebellious son who does not obey his father or mother and doesn't listen to them, even after they discipline him, his father and mother are to take hold of him, bring him to the elders of his city, to the gate of his hometown, and they will say to the elders of his city, this son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He does not obey us. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of his city will stone him to death. You must purge the evil from you, and all Israel will hear and be afraid. Is what I read to my son last night before bed. <laughs> Deuteronomy 21, the stoning of a rebellious son. Now, we scoff at that, don't we? At first glance, it's horrifying, so let me give you some things to consider. Number one, in a land, in a tribal community without police or a judicial system, how is it that you execute justice? Okay, that's one question. Number two, generally speaking, we disown our children. We no longer take, in our culture, we no longer take responsibility for our children when they turn a certain age and graduate from a certain level of school. We say, you're an adult now, and you need to get out of my house, many of us are saying. Not my problem anymore is the culture of today. But I want you to see that biblically, that's not necessarily the case. Here you have a cultural moment in which parents are responsible for their children and their entire household. And you have to understand, too, this isn't just a residence. This is your family business. This is your entire infrastructure. This is all of your finances. Everything is wound up in the family. To ask if you're a business person to this culture would be mind-blowing. There's not like house and business. There's just Family, so everything, the household, the residence, the business, it's all interwoven, do you see? In an agrarian, tribal-based society, if you have a rebellious, drunkard, gluttonous, disobedient son, generally we would argue that this son, we would understand that this son is old enough to be called a drunkard and a glutton, which likely means what we would call an adult, and they are destroying the property, they are, just, they are a threat to national security in their tribe, what do you do? One of the questions is, whose responsibility is it? Who takes responsibility for that rebellious child? There's no police, there's no judicial system, so who's responsible? 
And I want you to see two things in this text. Number one, it's the parent's primary responsibility. They self-identify and say, we've done all we can. This child is rebellious. And I don't want you to, I don't want you to hear rebellious like, I'm gonna backpack through Europe against your will, right? This is recalc- This is absolute against the community. Again, agrarian tribal-based society. Literally, a threat to the security of your people group. Now, two things. Whose uh, responsibility is it to identify the child as rebellious? Mom and dad. Whose responsibility is it to execute justice? The community. Now, the reason that I say we might be chronological snobs is because of this. Our current cultural moment, which we assume is best, is a society built around rampant individualism where the family is nothing more than an incubator for consumers. I'm gonna do that one more time. We live in a cultural moment in which, which is built around rampant individualism that views the family unit solely as an incubator for a consumer. Look at all the marketing that's geared towards your children. We live in a cultural moment built around rampant individualism that views the family unit, their sole responsibility is to be an incubator for consumers. That's our cultural moment. We also, because of that, live in a current cultural moment in which no no one in our community takes responsibility for other people's kids. In fact, other people's kids is a term of derision. Y'all ever seen other people's kids? They're in my neighborhood and they are loud. And yet in a tribal, in a, in a, in a familial-based society, not an individualist society, people viewed in their community, they viewed the responsibility of raising children, yes, primarily at the parents' level, but they also viewed themselves as neighbors, friends, cousins, aunts, uncles, grandparents. They viewed it as their corporate responsibility to raise the kids. Who executes justice for the rebellious child? The community. Now, the reason that I wanna lean into this, and like I said, nobody's gonna like this, is this. I generally do not care about your kids. If I see your kids doing something that I would consider to be errant behavior, I generally just, like my natural intuition is to roll my eyes and then talk bad about you in my head. (laughs) And then maybe gossip about, about you with my wife and some other people. You wouldn't believe their kids. But if I knew that if that errant and sinful behavior gone unchecked would lead to me having to execute justice on this now adult child 10 years, 20 years down the road, I would take my responsibility as a nurturer, as an adult, as a member of the community exponentially more seriously. I would not be in a position to wash my hands of other people's kids. Do you see how the society has made it uh, seem uh, completely distasteful, and yet if you were to operate in that particular cultural moment, one of my questions to you would be this, what other way is there to live as a society if you live in this cultural moment? Do you see? And so it may be that we're chronological snobs. We may be putting our nose up at others simply because we do not understand. Number three, we may be projecting our definition or definitions onto an ancient culture like slavery. I need, I need to be very clear here. Slavery is abomination. Everything I'm about to say is simply to help us understand what's going on, not to say I think these are good ideas. Can you, are you guys with me on that, please? 
Can we, be, can we understand? You think I like doing this sermon? I do not like doing this sermon. So let me try to help us understand. Number one, we may be projecting our definitions onto an ancient culture, specifically as it relates to slavery. We saw in the Genesis 16 text, Sarai took Hagar, her Egyptian, what was the category? Slave. Modern versus ancient mosaic or, or ancient biblical slavery. We, we, we may be projecting our modern views back onto the text. Here's something to consider. Modern slavery, our modern understanding of slavery, 17th, 18th, 19th century slavery is a race-based, hands-bound, kidnapped and smuggled, lifetime enslavement, be treated like property without pay and with very little um, uh, care. You're just treated like a piece of meat. That, that's our view of slavery. Do you think that would be, it's, it's abhorrent. When the scripture talks about slavery, it's not talking about that type of slavery. And I'm not saying that one is good and one is bad, but I simply want to help us understand our definitions. When the scripture talks about slavery, it's closer to something we may call indentured servitude because it is not kidnapping. In fact, kidnapping is expressly forbidden in the scriptures. It is not race-based. We see that uh, cousins have entered into a slavery agreement with, their, uh, with, with those who are their slaveholders. We also see that it's majority of times in the ancient term, slavery was temporary, that it was paid, that slaves were oftentimes more educated than their household uh, leaders, that there was legal protection that they were treated as people and not property. And so it's at least different. And here's something else to consider, and, I, and this is that lecture part. <clears throat> In an agrarian, tribal-based community or society, if you were to lose all of your household estate, and you are literally on the streets, again, you're living out in the field, right? An agrarian-based society. You're living out You lose all of your assets, all of your resources. It's just you alone. What are your options for life? Because again, there's no businesses. You can't just go work for the business. You can enter the military if you were lucky enough to be of the right age and physical shape. You could enter a life of crime. You could simply forage around. But one of the, again, I'm not promoting this, but one of the options available is to sell yourself into a home because they would not want to adopt you into their family, but you might enter into a legal agreement that we translate as slavery in which you say, I will be part of your household if you pay for me and feed me, and then in 10 years our contract will expire and I will leave. The reason I say that is simply to say we have to make sure that we do the hard work of understanding when the scriptures are describing or proclaiming something, we have to be very careful that we understand what it's actually talking about. Now, someone might say, but Pastor Caleb, haven't so many uh, American slave owners used the biblical text to justify their slavery, modern-day slavery? Absolutely. And let me push you on further. There are people today doing absolutely evil things, using the scriptures to justify their evil behavior. That's been going on for years. And the answer is not throw God away or throw the scriptures away. The answer is, look more deeply at the scriptures and strive to understand God more deeply. Because it may be that we're confused. Let me put it to you this way. Um, have you ever heard the statement, my parents uh, get smarter the older I get? Yes. You guys ever heard that? Okay, uh, I'm eight years into parenting. I got three kids. I realized in the last eight years how smart my parents were. But when I was, when I was living in their home, uh, operating uh, underneath that regime, if I will, if you allow me. 
I was constantly frustrated, confused, disappointed, uh, angry at the things that I perceived them to be doing. Why? Because I had not yet deepened my maturity enough. I had not become mature enough to truly understand. And let me push this on you, okay? So if you're coming to the scriptures and you're frustrated with what you read, I want to lean into this a little bit. Do not give up. If you gave up every friendship, every human relationship that you have, when the other person became confusing or frustrating, you would have no friends. Is that right? Because we're dealing with other people. And so what we need is maturity and long-suffering and patience, and we need to grow and deepen in our understanding. Why did you do that? Is that what you're actually saying? Uh, That's an interesting one, isn't it? How many times have you gotten into a fight with someone and it all started because you misunderstood what the other person was saying? Ever happened to you? It happens to me on the daily. It may be that we're misunderstanding what God says. It may be that we're misunderstanding what terms that are being used. And so I would encourage you, be long-suffering and stay, uh, stay strong in your engagement with the Lord. Hmm. And it may be that we don't see the whole uh, story. Maybe that we don't see the whole story. There is a general principle in the scriptures that God accommodates or stoops to a broken world and operates within that brokenness. And so there are times where God will make decrees, where God will give commands that seem so crazy to us because they seem so so insensitive, so mean, so rude, so short-sighted. Like, treat your slaves with respect and like people. The reason that I bring this up is, uh, okay, so this theory of, this idea of accommodation, you already know this, right? That just because God gives a decree does not mean that God is decreeing his ideal. You with me on that? Just because God gives a command does not mean that that command entails his ideal. Uh, Have you ever heard the words uh, of of the Lord, uh, love your uh, enemy? You guys ever heard that? Super frustrating. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You guys ever heard Jesus say that? Okay, let me ask you this. Does that mean that God's ideal desire is for me to have enemies and people persecute me? Okay, so you know then that when God gives the command, love your enemies, that does not mean that God is saying, I love it when people have enemies. You with me on that? Simply because God gives a command does not mean that he is commanding his ideal. And so, uh, when Jesus gets questioned about divorce by some of the religious leaders, he says it's because of the hardness of your heart that God gave the law about divorce. To care for the divorced woman because in their society the divorced woman would have had very few rights and protections. And so simply because God gives a command does not mean that he is commanding his ideal. God stoops and engages in a broken world with broken people. And his commands move us closer to the ideal, but they are not necessarily his ideal. How do we know the ideal? This is the story of the universe. Do you guys know the story of the universe? In Genesis 1 and 2, we see that God creates people in his own image for unity and harmony and union with him and with one another. And this is the ideal, a fully flourishing life. 
But in Genesis 3, we see that there's a great problem that arises, namely our rebellion. We rebel against God. Each of us have, to some degree or the other, turned from our God and turned to our own way, elevating ourselves to the position of God, dethroning God off of our hearts, and making the universe about number one. This is cosmic rebellion. And the rest of the Older Testament, uh, from Genesis 4 all the way up until Matthew 1, one of the things that you see in the scriptures is a movement towards an anticipation of a day in which we will be redeemed. And here's why I lean into this. This conversation about stoning disobedient children, about slavery, about primogeniture, about polygamy. These are aspects of brokenness in our world. And when God gives commands, he's stooping to move us closer to his ideal, though the command is not his ideal, because God, check this, God cannot bring about the ultimate ideal, his ultimate ideal, with moral commands. God cannot bring about his ultimate ideal with moral commands. Be good. Stop sinning. Because the problem is not inherently our behavior. The problem is a heart that has rebelled against God, turning from God and turning to sin. This is the problem with, well, frankly, this is the problem with me. And this is also the problem with you. And moral commands towards the ideal will never get us to the ideal of union with one another and union with him. And in the Gospels, you have redemption accomplished. Have you guys ever heard of Good Friday? Or that thing that happens a few days after? It's on the Sunday. It um, starts with an E, Easter. Good Friday and Easter are not simply things we do because of tradition. They are reflections and remembrances of God taking on flesh and dying. All of that anticipation was leading up to that moment and the remainder of Scripture is anticipation, recognizing that our redemption has been accomplished and that one day our restoration will be accomplished. Jesus says, one day I'm coming back and I will make all that which is broken whole again. When God gives many of these commands, he's stooping in the midst of a broken system to engage with broken people to move us towards his ideal, but ultimately that ideal can only be attained when we repent from our sin, turn and believe in the gospel. And so one of my questions for you today is this, have you? Some of us are still trying to figure this whole Jesus thing out. Are you treating Jesus seriously enough to be able to at least investigate and explore this idea of Jesus, these teachings of Jesus and the actions and work of Jesus? For those of you that follow after Jesus, are you clinging to that hope? Jesus calls us to repent and to believe in the gospel. And we are moving towards that ideal. Here's something I find fascinating. In the book of Genesis, there's some furniture, some, uh, some plants. There's a couple of trees that they are kind of popular. There's like the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You guys ever heard of that? Yep. Uh, I've got some evil trees in my backyard, but uh, I don't know if there's any knowledge coming from it. So the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Another one too, the tree of, um, tree of life. The center of the garden was the tree of life. Unity with God and with people and life eternal. And yet that is closed off from us because of our rebellion. 
You know, uh, at the end of the Bible, there's this last book of the Bible called Revelation. At the end of the book of Revelation, this, there's this piece of furniture that shows up again. There's this tree that shows up again. And Revelation, remember, is all about what's revealed, about what's coming next, what's coming at the end, which is actually a beginning. And you see the tree of life there as well, that we are moving towards God's ideal again. And he waits patiently for us to turn from our sin, to turn to him, and to believe in the gospel. Hmm. As you engage with God, as you engage with the scriptures, I wanna leave you with this. Many of the things, the considerations that I've given to you today are not satisfying. They're not satisfying, half of them are not satisfying to me. But there is one who is satisfying, and one to whom we must cling as we engage in these difficulties. Christ is the true and ultimate husband who is faithful to his bride, the church, to the point of even death. Christ is the true and obedient son who is taken out of the city gates and killed by the city elders, not for his rebellion, but for ours. Jesus, who holds the universe together with his hand, took the form of a slave, washing his disciples' feet allowing his hands and feet to be bound and giving his life for us. Jesus is the one and only son who has taken up a hill who has given his life for you so that we might be redeemed. And he calls all to turn from their sin, to repent, and to believe in the gospel. Will you?